Let's get started. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 8 this morning. I want to make it as easy for you as possible, so I'm going to have all the text up here on the screen, but you can follow along uh, in your Bible or on your app if you'd like. Uh, In 1 Kings chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. Chapters 6 and 7 are kind of a lead-up conversation. Chapter 6 and 7 both are, uh, in large part, kind of uninteresting uh, building instruction manuals. They have a lot of details about how long things should be and how wide they should be and how tall they should be and where you should place this piece of uh, furniture and all of that stuff as it relates to both the temple that Solomon is building as well as uh, his palace, his home, and the administrative center for government there in Israel. But the tension that chapter 8 introduces for us, the real question that we're going to wrestle with today as we open the chapter is this question. Will God inhabit a home made by human hands? Solomon uh, has built the temple, and today we're going to see him inaugurate the temple, bring a blessing. Oh, it's the grand opening of the temple. Uh, And with that comes a little bit of attention. Is God actually going to show up at this place that we've built? Just to give you a little bit of a run-up, to give you some context, hopefully this will help uh, you. Here's a, a picture. This is actually the city of David at the time of David's death. So as you can see here, this is the city. It was actually an existing military fort of the Jebusites when David conquered them, and then he moved in and took it over. Uh, and he built himself at the very top. He took over. This was his house. And as you can see, it overlooks the hill, and this is where the majority of his key military folks would have lived here in this protected city for him. If you remember a few weeks back, we talked about King David and Bathsheba and how he looked down over from his rooftop into her yard where she was bathing. You can see how that would work with him being high on the hill overlooking all the other homes. One big uh, change that David made, which was a strategic one, is this little, you might notice this little outpost here on the edge of the city wall. The original builders of the city, in a strategic blunder, uh, actually walled off the only water source for the area. It's the spring, the Gion Spring right here. So what would often happen is they would be besieged by their enemies and they would not let them come out to get water and they would essentially have to give up because they were thirsty. David figured out a way around that. Let's extend the wall. That's what he did. David also had a plan. And what David's plan was is that he was going to expand this city that he had moved into and make it a grand capital for Jerusalem and for the God that he served. This place was a significant for the Israelite people because this hill that is above it uh, is, you would know it as the Temple Mount. It's um, called Mount Moriah. And actually, this has a huge significance in the history of Israel because their original patriarch, the first one who was called and introduced to Yahweh, uh, was a man named Abraham. And Abraham, in his old age, was given a son named Isaac. And then God asks him, once he's given him this heir, to sacrifice his son. And there's this famous story in the book of Genesis where Abraham takes uh, Isaac, his boy, up to the top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And there God says, stop, and he provides a substitute. This is a holy site in Israel's world. And David has the plan, I'm going to turn it into something grand, but God tells him, you might make the plans, but it's actually going to be your son who builds it. That's kind of the context of where we end up. Just to give you an idea of how big of a thing we're talking about here, I've included some scale. So this section down here is that original city. You can see how small it is. And what Solomon has built over the last seven years in verses that are laid out in chapter six and seven is this massive complex that sits on top of this whole area. 
It's huge. It was a massive undertaking, very expensive uh, and very uh, time committed to, in order to make it happen, seven years to do it. If you do uh, a search for what Solomon's temple looks like, you're going to get all kinds of imagery. And here's the problem with trying to give you imagery. We don't really know. Here's what we do know. The text tells us in kind of obnoxious detail all of the sizes and how big things should be and what the ornate decoration should look like. But if you read in the commentary, so what does that look like? Almost every detail says, and we don't really know what that means. Uh, cut the windows to look like this. And then they say, well, we don't know if those were actual windows or if they were just relief in the rock. It's really hard. And so every illustration that you're going to find of what Solomon's temple looks like, it's going to look different. But this gives you a general idea. The temple is, whoops, I went too far. Temple's back here in the corner. And up here would be both, uh, this would be called Solomon's palace. Uh, one of the chapters is dedicated to his palace. It would be his home, which would be over here. And then this is really kind of the administrative center for the nation. So he's building a house, uh, a judicial uh, building, a civic building, a public meeting place, all in one area here on the top of the hill. So that's kind of what we're talking about. And this project has been ongoing for a long time, and now Solomon is ready to have the grand opening for the temple, okay? Here's where the text picks up, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read a little bit, and then I'll give you some observations. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. Okay, just to pause there, you have to remember this section on these three kings is a significant turning point in the governmental structure and the way the culture operates in Israel. Prior to these kings coming in, this culture was ruled by local tribal leaders, elders, chieftains in each of these regions spread out all over the countryside. And now there's been a slow consolidation of power. But in order to do so, Solomon needs their buy-in. It's really hard to lead people who don't think you should be leading them. So Solomon gathers all the key people to come here to town for the grand opening. And part of that process is they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll talk about in a little bit, up from the city of David where it's been resting to its new home in the temple. Okay? All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. I'm sure you're well spun up on Hebrew lunar calendars, so you know Ethanim very well. No. Ethanim uh, is in the fall. It was a lunar calendar, so it kind of would shift a little bit back and forth. But if you think October, you're in the right neighborhood. So it would have been just kind of the season we've come out of. It was the harvest festival. So at the end of the harvest season, they would come together in Jerusalem for a week. This would be known as the Festival of Booths. This would be known as Pentecost. This is the same festival time that all of those things are happening. And Solomon's no dummy. He knows that they're already making travel plans to come to Jerusalem, and he's backpacked his inauguration of the temple on top. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that they were done with construction almost 10 months before this, and he waited until this moment to inaugurate the temple when everybody's already come for this thankfulness to God and his, faith, and his faithfulness. Okay? When all the elders of Israel arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. If you remember in the story, and if you don't, I'll explain it to you. Uh, 
Israel has been conducting their worship centrally and distributed through their history that they've had at this point. What do I mean centrally? They had a tent. It was, it was a sacred tent. It would have been called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And in it held the Ark of the Covenant, which was their sacred object. Uh, and that was a temporary setup. When they were in the desert after they had left Egypt and were wandering around, they would go to a new place. They would set up the new tent. They would worship there until it was time to move. They'd tear it down and move it to the next place. This is an opportunity for them to move from a temporary home of worship to a permanent one. And they're bringing with their move. It's moving day. We got to bring up the ark and we got to bring up all the stuff that's in the tent and put it in the new temple. So the priest brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Uh, great story. Like I said, we struggle to understand what exactly this temple looked like inside, uh, but there's a lot of really great imaginative illustration about it, and I came across one that I really liked, and so I'm going to share it with you because I thought it was actually beautiful. This uh, man named Abe Goolsby did it. This would be a picture of the inside of the temple, but at the end of the room where the stairs go up, that would be the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. That's where they would have put the Ark of the Covenant and then drawn a thick curtain in front of it, and most of the religious activity for the year would happen in this room right here, and no one would go inside of that sacred space except for once a year on the holy, holiest of holy days, okay? So that kind of gives you at least a little bit of imagery of what we're talking about probably helpful to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. This is a big part of the story. We got to move this thing up. Um, you might be familiar with the Ark of the Covenant because you've been around church or you like Indiana Jones. Either way, you're kind of, you're there, you're getting there, right? I, as a kid who grew up in the 80s, I have the gift of both of those things. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The first Indiana Jones movie is about trying to find the Ark of the Covenant because we actually don't know where it is now, <laughs> But here's what the Ark and the Covenant would have looked like roughly. Once again, this is an imaginative illustration based on the descriptions we have. It was three feet long, two feet wide, two feet high, made of acacia wood, coated in gold. Uh, on top of it sat two cherubim, and we're going to talk about them in a second because, once again, we don't really know what cherubim were supposed to look like. We kind of have some ideas based on descriptions. And then there would have been two rings on each side holding long poles, because the temple or the Ark of the Covenant was never supposed to be carried by animals. It was always supposed to be carried by hand, by priests. So if you think about them with, on the shoulder, right, carrying this to the place it needs to go. Inside of the Ark is one item, technically two items, but it's one item. It's the two uh, tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain with the law of God, the Ten Commandments on it. They've been stored inside of this place, the voice of God stored in this box and sealed. The, cher uh, the cherubim, which are on top, as you can see, uh, what, are they, what do they look like? Just angels. It's like people with wings, right? Pro most scholars think it was more like, if you think of the sphinx in Egypt, right? Kind of this lion with a human head and then add big wings to it. That's probably what the cherubim looked like. And they would have been on top. And it was believed that the presence of God dwelled underneath the wings of the cherubim. At least that was the hope. Now, keep in mind, this is the tension of the moment. He spent all the time and money and effort to build this place, and now he's had a huge ceremony and he's invited all these people, but nothing's happened yet. I'm going to tell you a story where I experienced something similar. Uh, my wife, Rachel, she was here last hour, so I got to watch her like 
smile and joy and cringe all at the same time as I told the story. Uh, my wife Rachel and I met each other when we were 11 years old in uh, our hometown of Manville, North Dakota, population 350. Uh, I know, can you, you can hardly imagine such a bustling metropolis, I know. Uh, and we, in probably ninth grade, freshman year or so, we started hanging out and our friends group hung out and it was at 14 when I discovered, I think I'm in love with this girl. Um, and I did what every responsible 14-year-old boy who has these feelings does. I floated that idea through one of her friends to hopefully get it to leak back to her. Uh, and she got word that I was interested. And then that word leaked back to me through the same friend, no thanks. Um, and I was like, that's okay. I completely understand. Uh, I know where you're coming from. I probably wouldn't be into it either. Um, but what I do have is patience and perseverance. So I stuck it out for a long time. Uh, and, I, and I've told my boys, like, listen, I can't tell you how to woo women, but I can tell you patience really pays off. Stick with it. You can do it. Uh, so I stayed nearby for a long time until we were probably 20 or 21 years old and in college, and I was um, dating some random girl. And uh, I remember Rachel was talking to me, and she said, um, hey, what are you doing for Valentine's Day with this girl? And I said, oh, that thing's over, whatever. Lame. And, uh, and then she, she le left, and I didn't hear from her again, except for the next day I got an email. And it was an email from Rachel, and she said, I feel like I need to tell you that I love you, and I think we should date, and I know this could ruin our friendship. Imagine how compelling I must have been for her to put herself out there like this. She sent this email to my Yahoo email account, which I still keep to this day, just so I can go back and look at that email, because I, sometimes I can't believe she actually sent it to me. But I was like, sweet, this is working out great. <laughs> yep, I'm interested. Mark me down as yes. Um, and I told myself, man, if I can get over the hump of like, we're not friends now, we can actually date, and that goes okay, this, this is a done deal. We're going to be married. Uh, this is our life. And we were three months in, and we were talking about marriage, and I think this is going to happen. Yeah, we should get engaged. Well, so I started planning, and I did what every 21-year-old farm boy does when they want to get engaged. I went and talked to my grandpa because I didn't have any money and said, can you help me figure out an engagement ring? Uh, and he did. And then I took Rachel out for a fancy dinner in our hometown, the big city next door, Grand Forks, North Dakota. And I want you to imagine it. Okay, it's 1999. There's a lovely Italian restaurant that has moved into a closed down Pizza Hut restaurant, but they've remodeled it real nice. And you know it was real nice because it had a lot of faux paint and uh, like rubber ivy hanging over stuff. It was real classy joint. Um, and so I took her out for dinner uh, and I had to have cover because she knew something was up. So I actually got her a Bible that had her name embossed on it. And I was like, I really wanted to bring you out for this reason. And she was touched. And then there was the moment it's building towards. I stand up and I call to the restaurant. Excuse me, excuse me, everyone. Excuse me, can I get your attention? Everyone, please. Now, you can imagine, people are not really interested right away to, like, what is going on with this guy? So I wait. Excuse me, please, can I get your attention? They finally all calm down, and now they're staring at us. And I give this stirring speech about how this woman is special to me, and she deserves your attention and an audience in this moment because I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And I get down on one knee, and I propose quietly to her. And she says yes. It was great. Uh, yeah. Well, I was so nervous, I collapsed into the chair at the table and just like leaned against the table like this. And uh, 
it's dead silent. Because they've all been staring at me doing this, and it's dead silent in the room. And some guy goes, what'd she say, buddy? <laughs> and I was like, she said yes, and they cheered, and it was great. But here's the deal. I, felt, I feel the tension that Solomon must be feeling in this moment. God has made promises to Israel. They've talked about this. This is an arrangement that's worked out. But he's putting on a big show and drawing a lot of attention to this moment. I sure hope God accepts our proposal. He didn't bring a diamond engagement ring. Instead, he brought this massive civic center with a temple in the middle of it. And then he says, God, will you show up? And here's what happens. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. God shows up. He said, yes. And it's so overwhelming. The priests can't even be in the room because the smoke and the presence of God is thick in that place. It's an incredible moment. The relief and the joy that Solomon must have felt must have been overwhelming. And Solomon does what anyone would do. He drops to his knees and he raises his hands and he begins to pray to the God who has just showed up. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. In 2 Chronicles, where this is recorded, it says after he stands, he then kneels. So we're going to take that. He kneels down and he raises his hands to heaven Now, I'm going to tell you, it's a long chapter. Most of this chapter is this prayer that Solomon asks of God. And so, as I was trying to put together how we were going to talk about it, it didn't feel appropriate for me to start chopping up his prayer. So, I'm going to read at length his prayer for you. And I want you to imagine yourself being part of the assembly of God's people in this moment where the reality that the God who has created the universe has shown up in your midst And Solomon is asking God to pay attention to you. Here's what he says. Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you've promised and with your hand you've fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promise you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. Let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, can't contain you, how much less this temple I've built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you've said, my name shall be there, so that you should hear the prayers your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath and they come and they swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act as a judge between your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing down on their heads what they've done and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned against you and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in the temple, Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you gave their ancestors. 
When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain down the land and give your people, you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when the enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disasters or diseases may come, when a prayer or a plea is made by anyone among your people, Israel, being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know every human heart, so that they will fear you all the time that they live in the land you gave to our ancestors. As for the foreigner who doesn't belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the people of earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people, Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies wherever you send them, And when they pray to the Lord towards the city you have chosen and the temple I've built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive in their own lands, far away or near. And if they've had a change of heart in the land where they're held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray towards the land you gave their ancestors, towards this city that you've chosen and the temple I've built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayers and their plea and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they've committed against you and cause their captors to show mercy for you, for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron-smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you, for you singled them out of all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance." just as you declared through your servant Moses when you, sovereign Lord, brought our ancestors out of Egypt. This is where he would say amen, and everybody would be very confirmed that he was a preacher because he really went on and on and on there. It's a very long prayer. But it is a momentous moment. God is here, and he's asking on behalf of God's people to hear their cries. If I had to summarize what Solomon is instructing here, Solomon is doing what the best uh, preachers do, which is he's asking God to be faithful and instructing the people who are listening on how to behave in order to be in this relationship with him. He's asking God to behave this way, and he's telling people, this is why you're going to end up in trouble. And he's telling them the way back. Repent and call on the name of the Lord over and over and over again. This is what Solomon is telling us. The Lord God has tuned his ear to the cry of his people. The Lord God has tuned his ear to the cry of his people. 
If you're a parent, you know what this looks like because if you've ever been in a crowd with younger kids and one of them yells, dad or mom, there's something in you that cuts through the din of everything that's happening to immediately snap your head around because your ear is tuned to your child's voice. What Solomon tells us is that is God's attitude towards us, that in the chaos of everything that's happening on earth and all of the war and the violence and the oppression and the things that are going wrong, he will hear the cry of his people and it will cut through like a child's voice in a crowd to their parent. Now, it's good news that he hears us. And he hears us when we're in the midst of everything that we have going on. What he describes here in this list in his prayer is all of the concerns of Israel in the ancient Near East, right? They would have been treated unjustly. They would have been oppressed by their enemies. They would have experienced drought and famine and plagues and disaster and disease. And in some of these cases, we go, yeah, I know what drought's like. Yeah, but not the kind of drought that means if it doesn't rain, you won't eat this year and you'll watch your kids starve. That would have been a reality for them. We know what it looks like to have a plague or disease. After all, we've been through a pandemic. But they had no hope of hospitals or medicine, and plagues would kill thousands regularly. These are real concerns for real people living in the world. And I want to tell you that what this means is these are not the only things that God cares about. What it means is that God cares about what concerns you. Your afflictions may be a different list than this, but if Solomon was praying before us on our behalf, he would be talking about the things that concern us. If your job loss, if your cancer scare, if your marriage being on the rocks, if your kids being rebellious, if your neighbor being mean to you, then turn to the Lord your God and cry out. His ear is tuned to the voice of his people and he will rescue This is what he's telling us. God is committed to his people and he will respond and rescue them when they repent and call out to him. Notice that there is a multi-step process here. The first one is we are afflicted. Something is happening to us that is out of our control and we need help. And he says, turn to God and he will hear you. And the process for doing so is humility and repentance. Here's what it takes in Solomon's equation to besiege the God of the universe, to beseech him to listen to our voice. Here's what it looks like. We admit that we have done wrong and we have offended him. We admit that this is out of our control and we admit out of faith that he is capable to rescue and that he sees fit to do it. This is the God that he's telling us about. This is the God who hears us and cares about your needs and desires to rescue you. That is his desire But we have to be careful that we don't create a world in which God is uh, somehow beholden to all of your concerns. That he is a uh, servant of yours that's just waiting to do things in order to bless you because you're the ultimate end and goal of the world. Uh, I know much of our society would love you to believe that, that you are the ultimate end of everything. But that is not the biblical story. In fact, this is what the scriptures say. God is committed to our good for his glory. 
Now, I want to be careful. Sometimes when we talk about it's for God's glory, what it can mean is that our good isn't even really part of the equation. No, God is committed to your good. He's committed to your rescue. He's committed to hearing your voice. He's committed to your concerns because meeting your concerns and bringing you into the goodness of relationship with God brings glory to his name. That is what the scriptures tell us. And what happens over and over again in this prayer with Solomon, he says, when you are hurt, when you are lost, when you are oppressed, cry out, repent, and turn to God, and he will rescue, and everyone will hear how great your God is. That is what this prayer says. God wants to care, and God wants to rescue, because in his rescuing, his name is made great. And we get the side benefit of the rescue. Now, if I'm in the crowd of Israelites, I am, I am amped up hearing this. Yes, that's our God. That's, that's the one we serve. He's the one that we're a part of. And then Solomon turns to the people. He's prayed to God on their behalf, and now he turns to the people, and here's what he says. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and to keep commands and decrees and the laws that he gave to our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I've prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need so that the people of earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. I want to repeat that for you. I don't want to miss it. May God do all these things I've asked. May God be faithful to us. May we stay faithful to him so that the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Here, when I talked about the fact that we don't really know exactly what this temple looked like, one of the things that scholars will do in order to try to decipher it is they will look at other temples from the time period in the ancient Near East that surrounded this. Because the problem is in Jerusalem, this place has been under war and besieged from the left, the right, the north, the south for thousands of years, and it's built upon, built upon, built upon, built. And so to get down to the original footprint of the temple is very difficult. So when you go to the temples that are in these cultures nearby, and they have many of the same features that are described, uh, you can learn something about what the temple may have looked like. And I know my first response when I read that is like, yeah, but those weren't real temples. In fact, it feels almost offensive to me to think that the temple to Yahweh somehow took on the form or the influence of the architecture of these false temples. And yet, that seems to be the reality. And this is the major distinction. It is not about the shape. It is not about the architecture. It's not about the grandness. It's not about how wonderfully planned it was. It wasn't about how much richness and gold or power was there. The difference is those temples were aspirational uh, idol factories towards gods that were not real, and this temple was the house of the living God. That is the difference. And that difference is substantial because this God proves his power through his ability to act and rescue his people over and over and over again. This is how he finished. He says, May your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, to live by his decrees, obey his commands as it is at this time. Right? These people are on the uh, conference or the camp high 
They're there for the festival, the party. They're there for the whole week. They're hanging out with everybody. It says that they've, they sacrificed something like 22,000 animals in this process in the text. And you go, what a waste. No, they were going to cook those and have a party. That's what these sacrifices are about. These people are flying high. And he's saying, may you be as committed for the rest of your life as you feel like you are right now. Because this is the reality. The presence of God blesses those who are already his for the benefit of those who are not yet. The presence of God blesses those who are already his. Solomon, the people of Israel, the church, for the benefit of those who are not yet. If you notice in both the crescendo of his prayer and of his uh, instruction to the people is about how the fame of God would extend beyond their borders beyond their generation, to the corners of the earth, and people would know that this God was different than the God that was claimed to be in the temple down the street or next door, because that God was ineffective and didn't do anything. But I've heard stories of that God. I've heard stories of how he's rescued. I've heard stories of how he's redeemed. I've heard stories of how this little nation called Israel has been defended by him. He must be real. Because the presence of God blesses those who are already his for the benefit of those who are not yet. I'm going to transition because you say, okay, this is, maybe you're in the position that I was as I was prepping this. That's great. This temple that Solomon, a king 3,000 years ago, built in this place that we can't dig up and look at. I mean, this is interesting. How does this apply to me? How does this apply to us in 2022? I almost said 21. I'm getting old. I lose track of years. 2022 in Gilbert, Arizona. How does this connect in any way? I'm going to take you to the Apostle Peter. So if you remember, Peter is a disciple of Jesus' one of his closest disciples, his inner circle. In fact, when Jesus is getting ready to leave earth and ascend back to heaven, he tells Peter that Peter is going to hold a special role in the new church. He's going to be the, the leader going forward. And Peter takes on that responsibility and he writes this letter to the church in 1 Peter. Here's what he says. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter sees the imagery of the temple being fulfilled in the church. And he calls Jesus the living stone. In other places, it says that he is the cornerstone, the one that begins the building. In other places, it says he's the capstone, the one that finishes it. Peter says he's the living stone. He is the temple. And he says that us, just like him, When we are united with him in faith, we are his body and we are living stones. We are the temple and we are the priesthood. This is incredible. As we close today, I I want you to carry the weight and the responsibility and the gift that you've been given as part of God's people moving forward. Here's what it says. We are the living temple. One of the biggest difficulties that Jewish Christians in the first century dealt with was the fact that the temple was destroyed. How could God still be pleased with us if the temple in Jerusalem was no longer there? And Paul and Peter and the apostles all understood that's okay because the temple is no longer the seat of worship. We are the living temple of God. 
We are also his priesthood, which means that we are responsible to steward the presence of God on earth. The priesthood that was there was intercessors between God in the temple and the world that was outside of it. And what the scriptures say is that if you are a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you have a responsibility. You are a priest and a priestess ushering stewardship of the presence of God on earth wherever you go. People no longer have to pilgrimage to the temple. God has sent you on a pilgrimage as the temple to them. This is an incredible inversion of the way it has always been. We no longer draw people to a central place. Instead, he turned us into the temple and sent them into every corner of the world, into every nation, into every people group to bring the presence of God to them. And this is the reality. If you're sitting in the room and you're a person of faith, if you would say that I have put my faith in Jesus and I'm part of his family, then you are blessed. You have been rescued by that rescuing God. Great news. But you have been blessed to be a blessing so that the fame of God would draw many to him. Your salvation is not just about how this turns out in the end for you. This is not just about clearing up the mess that you were in. This is not just about alleviating your guilt, but instead the blessing that you have received that has done all of those things has been given to you as a gift so that you can serve as a priest and a priestess in the world of the Most High Living God. You can be his temple that is being moved about your community, your family, your neighborhood, your workplace, bringing the presence of God and ministering those because you've been been blessed to be a blessing to them so that people who are far from God could come close. This is an incredible gift that we've been given. Being the people of God is great, but it comes with a lot of responsibility and an amazing gift. We've been commissioned to bring the good news of God's rescuing arm, his strength, his efficacy, the fact that he's the real deal. That's the gift that you've been able to bring to the world in which you inhabit. And coming here today is much like this moment where they've all gathered in Jerusalem. You've come here today not because this is the end of the story. This is the hype meeting to send you on your mission as a priest and priestess tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and all the way till we get back to do this again next Sunday. That's the great news that we have to offer the world. God is real. He hears our voice. He rescues us in our affliction, and that can be true for you too. Let's pray that God can help us to be those kind of people. God, thank you so much for this truth that you dwell among your people, that you hear their voice. God, that you care about what afflicts them, that you want to heal us, that you want to overthrow oppression, that you want to combat injustice, that you want to feed us when we're hungry, that you want to bring blessing into our lives because a blessed people claim the power and the mighty outstretched arm of God. God, we pray that we would be people that proclaim your fame, that we would bring your presence wherever we go, that we would attest to your faithfulness. God, you're so good to us. The fact that you've included us in this story is almost impossible to believe, and yet it is true. God, change us, shape us, make us who you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.